We have arrived in chapter 11, the second half, verses 17 through 34. So listen carefully to God's word this morning. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and truly some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do give thanks and we ask, Lord, that you will speak and that you'll guide us into all truth by the work of your spirit. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. As a kid, I grew up participating in the Lord's Supper four times a year, once per quarter. And it seemed like a fairly significant and serious thing to the minister But that also introduced some confusion, because honestly, as a child growing up in the church, it felt rather random and infrequent that we participated. So on the one hand, there was this serious thing going on up front that was obviously significant, but yet it was so random and infrequent, I didn't know how to value it. All I really understood was that there was some connection between Jesus on Monday, Thursday, giving commands to his disciples to observe this meal, and his death on Good Friday, and that we then sometimes as a church would randomly show up and do this every once in a while. That was my experience of communion growing up. And if I were really being honest with you, as a kid, it was somewhat of a bummer every time I saw the, the communion bulletin because it was long. And I knew that the service was then going to go past noon, and everybody was going to beat us to lunch. It was going to intrude on my afternoon. 
That was my wanderings through the church. Then as a young adult, as I was maturing in my faith, I began attending a church that served the Lord's Supper once a month on Sunday mornings, but then they offered it every Sunday evening in their, in their evening service. This intrigued me because I found myself benefiting from participating in it. I couldn't tell you exactly why, but there was something there. And so I set up an appointment with my new pastor. Many of you have gotten the chance to meet him. His name was Mike Malone. And I wanted to sort all this out. Here was clearly someone who had a value on it, who took it seriously, and was also practicing it and understood it. And so I went asking him, what is going on in a communion service? What value am I to receive from this? I said, Mike, everything I know about communion is in the negative. Everything I've been taught by the church is just simply, we don't do it like the Roman Catholics do it. But rather than the negative, I want to know what the positive is. What does this mean? And I'm completely confused. I'm lost. Why is it important? I wanted to know the spiritual benefit. I wanted to know what exactly I was eating. It's a good question. I wanted to know what was going on. And friends, this morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians 11, that is still the question in front of us. What is going on in a communion service as we come to the Lord's table? Paul takes us through this in 1 Corinthians 11 as he addresses some specific issues. And in the brief moment that we have before we actually go to the Lord's table, we're going to look at six things. Yes, six. Hold on to your chairs. Um, it is a long morning together. Uh, this is somewhat Hurricane Paul coming out of 1 Corinthians 11. But as he is leading us into the value and the spiritual benefit of what it is to come to the Lord's table. And so, without further ado, let's get to it. The first thing is that in communion, we observe a tradition. You notice that Paul starts chapter 11 in verse 2. He says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And the word delivered there could be more accurately translated handed down. And so Paul is speaking to the Corinthians of things that he as an apostle who has met the risen Lord Jesus has delivered or handed down to the Corinthian church. And he commends them in the first half of chapter 11. And then in the second half of the chapter, he critiques them. You notice in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Now you note that the Corinthian church had received the tradition of observing the Lord's Supper. In verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed down to you. And the Corinthians were keeping this tradition. It was a tradition instituted by the apostles. And Paul says he learned this from the Lord Jesus himself. Along with the other apostles who met with Jesus and dined with him on Sundays, celebrating the Lord's Supper in between Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And so Paul hands this tradition down. Now there are some problems that the Corinthians are having around this tradition. But what is so crucial for us to recognize is that in the New Testament, what we have is a tradition, a ritual being established for the church by the very command of Jesus and then by the institution of the apostles. And so the question is asked, why do we take communion? 
And it is because the answer is very simple. It is because it's the command of Jesus and it was the normative practice of the apostles. And very early on in the life of the church, we go from Jerusalem all the way to Corinth and week by week, Christians were gathering to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to hear God's Word, to offer prayers. We have copies of liturgies from as early as 150 A.D. where there is a very simple pattern of worship that that we follow still today. And that's the pattern set up for Christian worship. Now one of the questions that often arises as soon as you begin speaking of communion is how often should you be taking communion? It's important just to historically note that the early church did do this week by week. That was the purpose of the Sunday gathering, was to hear the word of God and then to celebrate the Lord's table together. They came together for a festive meal, not a funeral or a solemn service, but it was in anticipation of the Lord Jesus' return. That was what was happening. As we move into the Middle Ages out of the early church, you find that the Lord's table was celebrated weekly, but the congregation was not invited to participate. They were invited to participate only annually. And so you would simply be an audience while the priest was up front doing all the rites and the rituals and moving through the motions. And so the people actually only took of the elements once a year. And so we have a regression there away from Uh, away from the weekly pattern. Then in the time of the Reformation, you have a recovery of the congregation participating in the Lord's Supper. There were great arguments between the Lutherans and what would become the Presbyterians or the Reformed and then the Anabaptists about how often you should take the Lord's Supper. John Calvin, one of my theological mentors and heroes, went to the city of Geneva and he advocated for weekly communion. John Calvin lost that argument, and then he ended up acquiescing that monthly communion would do. That was how uh, that our part of our tradition has developed, where we've arrived at a monthly practice of communion. During my presbytery exam, when I was coming to you at Christ Church, I was asked a series of questions by, uh, by the presbytery committee. They first asked me the question, what are your views of the Lord's Supper? And I told them that I was a Calvinist and that I believed that by faith, through the power of the Spirit, that I commune with the body and blood of our risen Lord Jesus. That's a good, solid Calvinistic answer. So then they asked the question. They said, well, Chuck, you're coming from a tradition where you have observed the Lord's table weekly. What is your preference? And I said, well, my personal preference is for a weekly participation in the Lord's Supper. After all, I'm a Calvinist. And this is what Calvin wanted as well. And then they said, well, Chuck, what are you going to do if your church doesn't agree with you? I said, you know, that's really the best question of all. Because I want you to know that I'm a Calvinist. And Calvin lost too. (laughs) And it's important to be acquiescing. And it's important to recognize that weekly communion doesn't establish your righteousness in front of God. And friends, it is possible inside the church, some people believe that there is some super spiritual notion of the frequency with which they observe the Lord's Supper. The irony is thick because they will protest so loudly and even split churches over the frequency when communion is supposed to be something that unites the body, never divides it. 
And Paul would have something to say to those who would object in that way. Now others fire back by saying that frequency takes away from the significance of it. The problem with that is that our Lord Jesus, week by week, in between his resurrection and ascension, was gathering with the apostles and observing it on Sunday. And so frequency was not a problem for Jesus either. And friends, what it's left to the church to do is to use its best judgment and good order as to what it means to take Jesus seriously, that there's benefit in this, and to set up in the schedule how we meaningfully participate in it. And we just simply have to work that out. It is commanded by Jesus to do this as often as you will. And that's what we seek to do. And in that, we're observing a tradition and taking seriously a command Jesus has given us to observe the Lord's Supper. That's our first piece. Now, the second piece is that in communion, we rehearse the redemptive story. This is what takes place as the communion service is unfolding, is that we're rehearsing or retelling the gospel story. In the Bible, when covenants are made, there is always a ritual attached to that covenant. If you think of the Passover covenant, where Moses enters into covenant and Israel enters into covenant with God, then there is the Passover ritual attached to it. Or if you think of the Abrahamic covenant, the promises made to Abraham and to his children and his children's children, and the the ritual sign is circumcision. When Jesus here uses the language of a new covenant, he attaches a ritual to it as well. And that ritual is the Lord's Supper. And of course, he also attaches baptism to this new covenant uh, in his command. And so what is happening is that ritual is to reinforce the message that in a very tactile and tangible way that our faith is strengthened and confirmed by what God has done on our behalf, what God is doing, and what God will do. And so we're rehearsing that. In verse 23, Paul explains what the Corinthians are to be doing. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now, this word delivered, as I mentioned a moment ago, is probably best translated, handed over. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. One of the disadvantages of the English translation of this is the word betrayed is actually the same word delivered in the original. And so Paul is saying, in other words, I received from the Lord Jesus... I received from the Lord what I also handed over to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was handed over took bread. Now it's true that Jesus was betrayed on that night, but I think a better and more faithful translation is to note the symmetry of what Paul is saying is that Jesus was handed over. And who was he handed over by? When you look at how this word handed over is used, particularly in the Greek Old Testament, Isaiah 53 explodes out of the Bible. In verse 6 and in verse 12, you find out that God was the one handing over Jesus for sinners. And so is Paul here referring to Jesus betraying Jesus? I mean, Judas betraying Jesus? I don't think so. I think Paul here is narrating the gospel story that God handed over Jesus for sinners. And friends, that is the heart of the communion service. That is what is happening, is we're retelling something that you know, and we're telling you something that you need to more deeply experience and deeply believe and invest yourself in. And so, is a communion service repetitive? You better believe it. 
Why? Because this is your greatest need. And you need to re-narrate and retell this story over and over and over until it drops down and it descends into the very core and marrow of who you are. But that's what we're doing in communion. Now, the third piece to communion is that we enact the gospel's provocative truth. That in this ritual, we're actually enacting and embodying something. This takes us into the problems that were happening in Corinth. Paul sums it up. And of course, it sounds very strange to us. Follow with me in verse 21. He says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And oftentimes when we read these verses, we're thinking something like a frat party. But what exactly is happening? It's important to consider for a second the architecture of a Roman villa. This would have been where the early Christians were normally gathering. They didn't have church buildings at that time. But the wealthier members of the congregation would have hosted the church gathering. And the way that a Roman villa was designed is that there was a dining area called a triclinium. A triclinium, from what we know of history, would normally seat about nine to ten people. It would be something like your dining room. It was not fit to host 50 people or so. They couldn't possibly pack in. But off the triclinium, there was what was called an atrium. And the atrium was a larger space where people would be able to stand and gather. And so what exactly is happening here in Corinth during the Lord's Supper? What it seems like from what we know of the rest of this book is that there are divisions amongst the Corinthians, and many of these divisions ran along class and socioeconomic lines, and that the leadership of the church seems to be more well-to-do. And well-to-do people in that day and age, much like our own day and age, if they were inviting you to their house for a sacred ritual meal and you were someone of their same upper class, you would not be dismissed to the atrium. You would be brought into the the triclinium. That is where you'd be asked to dine. And do you see what had happened? They had created distinctions and divisions amongst the body and said that certain brothers got this seat and certain sisters got this seat and certain brothers got that seat and certain sisters got that seat. And they had shamed the poor, and they had said that they were not equal in Jesus Christ. That there were first-class citizens and second-class. It was like those who get to ride in the front of the plane and those who ride in the cramped coach. This is what was being communicated. It's gone on throughout the history of the church, unfortunately. There was a tradition in old England where church pews were actually bought And so if you were wealthy and could purchase your church pew, you could lock it. Perhaps you've seen some of those pews. And they were reserved for you. And the poor were oftentimes left without seats, and so they would line and sometimes sit in the balconies. And then in the American South, when African Americans were living in conditions of slavery, they were dismissed to the balcony, not allowed to sit with the white congregation. They were evangelized in the balcony, given a second-class seat. And friends, this is what Paul is after. That there is no inequality in the body of Christ because we stand in front of God by Jesus Christ, the one who God gave over on our behalf, who took our sins on the cross and raised from the dead. We are now righteous in Him. 
and we have an equal standing with one another. Despite whatever our color, despite whatever our class, despite whatever part of society we represent, that we are one body, one people here as we gather at the Lord's table. And the Lord's table, this sacred ritual meal, enacts that truth. And Paul was so upset with the Corinthians that they were dividing themselves up by human means rather than understanding themselves by a common creed. And that is how we today understand ourselves. It is by common creed. And so we enact this provocative truth. Now, the fourth piece that's going on here in communion is we participate, or we are to participate, with expectation. Over the centuries, one of the things that evolved inside the church's communion practice is it moved from this joyful celebration and thanksgiving. You note that Jesus, when he took the elements, he gave thanks to God. That's where, that is the word Eucharist, just means thanksgiving. He gave thanks to God and then he blessed those elements. One of the things that happens as communion liturgies evolve throughout the church's history is that the communion liturgies become more solemn and more serious and they become more funeral-like. The thing is, friends, we gather to remember our Lord Jesus' death. But where is Jesus Christ today? He's not in the grave. He has one physical body and it is installed at the right hand of God. And so the Lord Jesus that we commune with is at the right hand of God, victorious and triumphant, and we're awaiting his return. And so note what Paul says in verse 26. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What frequently happens in communion is we get obsessed about how are these elements of bread and wine related to the body and blood of Jesus, or we get focused on the sociology of it, but we forget that communion is a deeply and profoundly eschatological event. That is a future-oriented event to when our Lord Jesus returns. And we observe this meal as a foretaste of the great banquet that will happen for all of creation when all things are made right and new and when sin is reduced to rubble and removed from God's creation. And these early Christians were gathering, and we are to gather in that same way, in festive attire, coming to God, out of all of our toil and trouble, knowing that He has destroyed it and ended it in Jesus Christ. And so there is this future, forward-looking orientation to the communion celebration. This is what communion is for us, is this great anticipation of God's future and His work in our world. Now, the fifth piece of this is that in communion, we engage a spiritual exercise. It is important to note that in all of this thanksgiving, in all of this celebration of what God has done on our behalf, there is a spiritual exercise that we are to engage. Paul picks this up in verses 27 through 32. And this is because the Corinthians were dysfunctional. Having created these divisions, he is now calling them to take an, a, a look at themselves, to judge themselves rightly, and ask whether they are rightly relating to God. Now, these verses are some of the most frightening, especially for those of a tender conscience. People will ask, 
What does it mean for me to worthily commune? Can I come to the table? And I've had friends who were so frightened by these verses that they simply would hold off and not participate. Because they would say, I am not worthy to commune and participate in the Lord's Supper. I've done this and I've done that. And they would enumerate their sins throughout the week. Friends, that is an over-application of what Paul is saying. That this meal in front of us is for sinners. And exists to signify and seal. It exists to exhibit and apply all the benefits of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to us. And so if you find yourself a sinner today, come and feast. This meal is for those who would confess their sins and acknowledge them. And who Paul is speaking to when he threatens judgment, when he says God may come and visit you in a very difficult and hard way, he's speaking to those who are unrepentant and creating the social divisions. You see, he mentions that you must examine yourself. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And one of the larger questions about this passage is what does it mean to discern the body here? In Paul's original argument, what it means to discern the body is to ask whether you are in right relationship with those who are around you. He's talking about the body of the church. And those who are creating divisions and shaming the poor who were exalting themselves, and who were also proclaiming all kinds of heretical truths, they were the ones not discerning the body. And so, friends, we have to enter into a spiritual exercise when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper. This doesn't bar sinners who are seeking to walk in repentance and faith. It welcomes them. Because it's designed to give you comfort. It's designed to affirm you in your soul of what God has done on your behalf in Jesus. But for those who are high-handed in their sins and unconcerned with them, there perhaps is a moment where we need to discern. Where we need to ask whether it's appropriate. Whether I'm right. And Paul says it's dangerous. Strap on your crash helmet. Prepare yourselves. God may show up because God is certainly present to bless or to curse. And so we engage this spiritual exercise. The final element that we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians 11, though, is that in communion, we participate in a spiritual mystery. Paul rehearses for us what we often call the words of institution in verses 23 through 25. He says that on the night he was betrayed or on the night he was handed over, our Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And these words have been the source of more controversy in the church's life than you can possibly imagine. The thousands of pages written in argument back and forth. It's important to understand some of that argument. During the Protestant Reformation, there were several different debates. The Roman Catholics, on the one hand, believed that the elements of wine and bread were transformed by a miracle of God and became literally the body and blood of Jesus. 
The reformers, rather astute about the body and blood of Jesus, said no. Jesus' literal body and blood are in but one place, at the right hand of God. And his body is not ubiquitous. It's not going to be all across creation, and it's not going to be on that table. That's not what Jesus was meaning. And so there was a press back. There was a pushback against Roman Catholic practice and theology. Now, at the same time, there was a certain side of the Reformation that was inspired by Zwingli and turned into what we would call Anabaptist theology, where they were saying that, no, this word remembrance is what is important. And that when we come to communion, we are there to remember what Jesus did. And so communion is a helpful aid towards meditating on what Christ accomplished for you. And they were picking up on something true. But the word remembrance, and the reformers began to push back against the Zwinglians and say, no, the word remembrance has more nuance and context to it. That it means to set up a memorial. It means to observe something. It's not just simply about cognitive memory. The reformers were attempting to do justice to Scripture when they developed their understanding of the Lord's Supper. You see, on the one hand, they had to push back against the Anabaptists and say, no, there is more going on here than meditation and memory. And then they had to push back against the Roman Catholics and say, no, the body and blood of Jesus are in but one place. But yet in 1 Corinthians 10, in verse 16, we saw several weeks ago, this is what Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And Calvin in particular went to great lengths to honor this language of the Apostle Paul, that when we take the elements, we actually participate in the body and blood of Jesus. And the question was, how? How do we participate in the body and blood of Jesus? Is this not in a literal way, a carnal way, where we're actually eating his flesh and drinking his blood? How do we eat the flesh and drink the blood? And Calvin then goes on to write hundreds and hundreds of pages to work it out, where we are spiritually feeding on Christ, communing with him as we come to him in faith, and that these elements in front of us are channels in which we virtually commune with the living Jesus, and he strengthens and feeds our souls. Calvin gets to the end of his account that our tradition has followed, the Scottish Presbyterian tradition. And he says, you know, after all is said and done, I rather enjoy it than understand it. And so friends, if you find yourself confused... You can find wonderful resources. There are wonderful books, and I'd be happy to direct you to them. They are things that have fed and nourished my own spirituality. But remember what Calvin says. I rather enjoy it and experience it than understand it. That you come to Jesus in faith. You come to him as a sinner. You come to him as one in need. You come to him as one broken. You come to him in expectation of a future world that's healed and made right. That's how you come to him. And then he confirms his promises to you. He seals them to you. He signifies them to you. He says, just as surely as you're eating this bread and drinking this cup, that's as surely as I gave myself for you. And just as surely as you eat this bread and drink this cup, that's as surely as I will return for you. And just as surely as you eat this bread and drink this cup, that's as surely as I have paid the price for your sins and strengthened you now by the Spirit to endeavor after new obedience. This is how he's working with you. 
when you come to him needy and poor and broken. When we come to his table in that manner. Because Paul does indicate that you can come to the table and it not actually be the Lord's Supper that we celebrate. And that's the thing we guard against. But become weak, we come repentant, we come as sinners, we come as children, we come with thanksgiving. We come in right relationship. And friends, when we come in that regard, there is a great thanksgiving where God dwells with us, God affirms us, God speaks to us, God assuages our doubts, God ministers to us in so many different ways. That's what happens in communion. Rich and full, mysterious and profound. And so this morning, come. Come sinners, come weak, come weary, and feast upon Christ by faith. That's what He welcomes you to do. Let's pray. Father, we do come this morning. and We're weak and we're tired and we're weary and we're sore. But we know that you are a gracious and loving God who gave our Lord Jesus on our behalf. That he came for sinners and so we come answering his command. Asking that you feed us and nurture us. That we eat his flesh and we drink his blood by faith and the power and the mystery of your Holy Spirit. And that you sustain and strengthen our souls. We ask for you to come and work among us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.